This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place and easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code contrarian at checkout to take advantage of this free offer. Now on to today's episode. Leo Schmidt, you are the CIO of River Eddy Capital Management, a hedge fund in New York. You may no longer be in New York City or maybe just not for the time being, but you have a lot of views that are certainly contrarian. And especially in this day and age where we hear a lot about electric vehicles and about sustainability and about this idea that fossil fuels are a thing of the past and oil majors and companies that do a lot of pollution and that consume a lot of fossil fuels are not a good place for investors to put their money. But your views run counter to this. In fact, you told me right before that you view energy and we can talk about specifically what you mean with this was one of the easier slam dunks of the current environment. So walk me through that a little bit and your views on the energy sector. So let's start with the uh, near term. Yeah. And then we can look at longer term. Um, so near term, oil and gas currently are priced higher than they were at the start of the pandemic. But we have actually less demand still. So the supply and demand imbalance as the pandemic eases, demand is certainly going to ramp up, but supply will have a lag. And so there will be a supply-demand imbalance, which will push the supply the price of oil and gas up. It, it has to happen. Okay. Um, so the, the question then, how long does that last? Right. Well, supply has come offline all through this pandemic. You know, it just it crashed and burned. In fact, yesterday we saw Saudi Arabia was beginning to ramp up a little bit. I'm sure that will help some, but it, the big countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia have... Uh, government needs to keep their countries afloat, in essence. Um, in the United States, we all have become the swing producer of natural gas. And we are driven by the uh, price of oil. So mm -hmm. when the price of oil is economic to produce, we produce. When it's not, we shut down. So we've shut it a lot all through this past year. And now to bring that demand back on would take time. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to be cautious after having a near-death experience all year long before they start ramping up production. They're not going to get ahead of the demand. Right. So 
as that ramps up, how fast can it be bought back online? And um, you know, how fast does demand ramp up? So that right. again becomes you know a bit of a question of what's happening with the pandemic. Right. How fast do we come back online? Mm. Um, we can talk about that a little later, but I I generally think we could come back pretty quickly, but it all it depends upon government officials and how we manage our way through this. Right. Okay. But let's, let's go back to the energy real quick now. Okay. Yep. So we're talking about the, you know, the price of, of the raw, uh, you know, the raw materials, oil and, and gas and such, which as you say, is, is very much dependent on supply and demand. Where do the companies, the stocks sit in that equation? So you can tell. They all below their pricing where they were. Right. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, they all have, uh, generally okay cash flow, mm-hmm. although it's you know it's, it depends on how much um, exploration but you, you've been doing in production, your capital spending. Um, again, they've all gone through near death experiences, but you can go up and down the chain. So Schlumberger and Halliburton, and some of these other uh, the, the equipment suppliers and you know oil field services, they all have you know gone through near-death experiences mm. and they're some of the largest companies in the world and so right. they have an ability to ramp down their capital spending all have done that mm-hmm. and so as they ramp you know and ramping that up will take time mm. but they throw off cash right now this is the mm-hmm. point where they throw off a tremendous amount of cash mm-hmm. um there is if you want to be risky you can find those names that really came close to death that mm. <laughs> Or you can just find a nice, you know, well, uh, you know, uh, an oil and gas company that doesn't throw off a lot, that throws off a lot of cash right now, and it doesn't isn't spending, and they don't have a lot of debt. If mm. you want to play a, a little other more um, risky ideas, you can do some of the pipelines, the gas pipelines, because uh, no matter what you, if you think about the price of natural gas, it needs to be moved. Okay. And we have the cheapest natural gas in the world next except for Saudi Arabia, and we're not far behind. So that gas will be moved. And ideally you'll find pipelines that take it to a liquid natural gas outlet. So, and then if you find basins that have been trapped, so like there's a lot of natural gas in the uh, Utica and Marcellus Shale. And if you can move that to the East Coast and there's some pipelines being built that will allow you to uh, get to an LNG port and export it to the rest of the world. That's almost a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. Now I have a name Equitrans. That's uh, E T R N is the ticker. The risky name. A lot of debt. They're in the middle of building. They had a issue with getting permits through the Appalachian Trail, and there was a family feud between the Parks Department. Forestry gave permission. National Park said no. So right. you had a fight. They had a, a lawsuit they can build through the trail. So that, that becomes kind of an interesting name because as they build a pipeline through the Appalachians to the East Coast, and then you can start exporting natural gas and they have reservoirs and basins where they're collecting gas. That's a pretty cool name. I mean, cool, but yeah. it has risk because mm-hmm. you have, the pipeline isn't done, but it's close to being done. So you, mm-hmm. you have to take a leap of faith and say, what could that be? But there's other names like that. Mm-hmm. So if you want to look in natural gas, pipelines are a great way to go. The problem with a lot of pipelines is we had MLPs right. structures, and that MLP structure is going away because tax advantages have gone right. away, although they may come back. But you know, with the with the Trump tax change, when you brought down the corporate tax rate, the MLP structure became less attractive. Okay. So people are reversing out of that. So they've created these MLP structures that are very complex or to unravel. Uh-huh. But if you look around, you can find some ideas. So that's another thought. And ETRN is not an MLP, right? It was an MLP, but now it is, uh, no, it's not. They reversed the structure. Interesting. Now, this is, this is pretty contrarian because this was one of the companies that Morgan Stanley, last month, they came out with a paper here on, this is after the Biden administration's uh, unveiled their energy policies, and they came up with a you know a list of companies that, that could potentially gain and some that can, could potentially lose. And they saw they said that ETRN Equitrans was most negatively exposed to regulatory risk. 
Uh, this is because of the ma their major pipeline. The pipeline going to the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, mostly due, due to that. So what's going on there now? They had to... So they had a, a family feud between the Park Service and the Forestry. Right. Uh -huh. And so uh, the Appalachian Trail is... Well, the forest around it is managed by the Forestry Service, and the trail is managed by the National Parks. Uh -huh. And so there's a fight in... Um, the pipeline won basically in, in, in short in, in courts. Now they're being challenged, but I have a hard time. Yes, it could end. Could it? The bigger issue probably is a delay. But, but um, yeah, you don't think just, it's going to be scuttled altogether because that's. I some don't of think the, it'll be scuttled. Uh huh. It's one of those things that it's almost too important on a national basis. Really? Because, okay. I mean, we listen. We we shot ourselves in the foot before, but it's it, it's. It's it's in many ways this is a is a legal issue with who has control of what. Mm. So I think I think it's pretty intriguing, and you know again it's a it's a high risk name. I, sure. I'm not putting not putting uh, too much of my portfolio there, but it's enough that when it works, and then it will pay you know consistent dividends. Once yeah. On. Yeah, dividend presently is right around eight percent. Yep. Uh, which is pretty high. Now. So it's, Given, given your entry price, that's a pretty good price to wait for yeah. something that could have a nice upside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it wasn't that's just, um, I was just saying, there, there was some other sell side. Uh, yep. Barclays just downgraded it. Actually, they say that in light of regulatory headwinds to the Mountain Valley pipeline project and a markedly less friendly backdrop for oil and gas infrastructure under the Biden administration, we have become less certain that the project will cross the finish line. And until the project is completed or outcome assured, we expect, expect shares of ETRN to underperform. Yep. That was back on February 11th. Right. But you, but so yeah, so this is very much a, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that the sell side is wrong. Yep. As well, well, they now. can't, they can't afford to take that kind of risk, right? Because if you make right. that call and you blow it. So, but as a small amount of your portfolio, the upside is more than a double. Mm. Very you know? interesting. And so I, and, and the pipeline, you know, it's hard to understand where they are because I listened to I think the February call and and, and the and the I read through what was happening. We don't know where it's at because we're in the middle of the winter. I mean, yeah, it's snowing, it's freezing, but they've started work again, and so that work will likely be completed around June. Uh -huh. So the Biden administration, they got to stop it soon. Right. If they're going to so stop I, it, I think once you're through the Appalachian Mountains and the trail. The rest of it is pretty much already completed. Uh huh. So I don't want to oversell this name, but it's sure. a name that I find kind of intriguing. And, and there's pipelines like that. And, and again, liquid natural gas, the United States has over 100 years of reserves. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty interesting. And it's a, you know, once the pipeline's there, it's a consistent, solid cash flow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And going back to what I said at the beginning, the secular argument to invest away from fossil fuels and you know all this electric car stuff. I mean, you have the Biden administration saying all these things and electric cars and, and ESG and all these other things, but you still see that there's, there's still a case that we need a fossil fuels, oil companies and all these other things. Right, so we, we cannot produce enough electric vehicles simply because we don't have enough lithium. Yeah. As much as you want to like take every car out and make it an electric vehicle, we can't. There are other battery technologies, um, but in, we don't have them currently to manufacture. Mm -hmm. So they're not ready for prime time yet. Um, the big question is, will we slow down the demand for fossil fuels, you know, so that it makes no sense to invest in these companies? It's not the developing world that's going to be the new demand. It's going to be the uh, emerging markets. And they want to have the lifestyles that we have. Mm. And for them to get there, they have to have fossil fuels. There's just no way that they can, you know, develop a country without fossil fuels. And if the problem with a lot of uh, what we call sustainable so solar, wind, um, is that they are intermittent. So what's happening now in Texas is a good example of intermittency. You just, you know, you can't rely on the weather for sun or wind to be permanent. So you have to have backup plants, peaking plants, which are generally natural gas. 
And so you have to have them. That's just the mm. way, even to have an electric grid, all electric uh, you know, vehicles, you still have to have natural gas and other fossil fuels as right. a backup. You right. have to have them. And as you go into the developing world, it's, you know, the demand is, will be high, you know, mm. especially mm. airplanes and other vehicles. Now, mm. that doesn't mean we can't have certain types of things like, you know, like you know, electric fleets that come and go around every night Natural gas is a great electric fleet, mm -hmm. you know, because you you don't have natural gas refueling stations, but it's the cleanest um, fossil fuel you can get. But there's just tremendous amount of development that's going to happen in the emerging world, and they have mm -hmm. to have fossil fu you know fossil yeah. fuels. You just can't get there any other way. And mm -hmm. we, as a, as a developed culture, we want to have reliable energy, and we can't have that without fossil fuels. Right. So, and then the biggest issue is if you can't have storage. So mm. lithium is pretty much the one way we want to do lithium. I'm surprised that the green movement likes lithium because lithium wastes are pretty toxic. Yeah. And uh, yes, you get rid of carbon, but mm. you have this horrible waste. So you're creating pollution. We could do that with nuclear. Mm -hmm. You know, nuclear waste, they're pretty bad, toxic, but uh, you know, you have a lot of energy. Mm. and carbon free we don't want that so i'm surprised people are willing to make that trade mm -hmm. but there's a lot of places where people have made silly bets mm -hmm. and you have a lot of elon musk making you know a lot of people feel comfortable with electric vehicles but he's it's his own company selling his talking his own book oh, of course you know yeah so yes the go fast cool cars are mm. they going to be right for everybody no mm. So, and then again, if you look at the emerging world, electric vehicles are expensive. So people who live in emerging markets, they don't have that kind of money. Mm -hmm. So it's the demand for oil and gas is gonna be there. It's mm. not for just transportation, for shipping, for airplanes, all those things are gonna have a demand for gas. Any way you look at it, it's not gonna mm -hmm. go away for a number of years and you can't get rid of all the existing infrastructure over there. Yeah. Yeah. So all that just means demand for oil and gas. And um, the big question is, what's the price? Mm. And so the United States has become the uh, swing producer. And so as a swing producer, we've created an economic reason to be there. So we no longer rely on Saudi Arabia and Russia because we change, we call the price mm. natural gas. And strategically in the world, that makes a big difference in the world. And it's changed political dynamics too, but yeah, not going to go away. Right. Okay. What about this whole thing in Texas? You touched on it earlier. Uh, do you see any any obvious winners from that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Ted Cruz is a loser because he looks that way. California. What does he carry? He's <laughs> he down in Cancun, right? Yeah. So who knows? Any any obvious winner and loser? I I don't know. Yeah. Um. You know who knows? But you know it's it, what it shows. I think is the idea. I mean, it's topical. But you know. California is having some of the same issues mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't have intermittent supply is really hard for an advanced economy. Mm. Yeah. And that's the problem. You have to be able to switch quickly. Mm. And, um, you know, that ability to have a cushion, what creates, you know, the, the electric grid has to be balanced. So yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe if you want to make an interesting bet, it would be on long distance power supplies and that we're going to we at once upon a time, they were thinking about creating a super highway throughout the whole United States where we could bounce electrons all the way around. Mm -hmm. We now have, you know, these like the PJM and all sorts of other legal areas where you, you know, buy and sell electricity, but you could conceivable have a, like a, a super highway where you go around through the whole country. Maybe mm. that happened. Hmm. But, you know. That sounds like it'll be a pretty ambitious infrastructure project, though. Yep. They were talking about that 20 years ago. So. They were. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things aren't new. We, we talked about this also. And if we look at the general market, and we like to use historical parallels, of course, perhaps the most popular one these days is 1999. We see these tech stocks going to the moon. We see these you know, being bid up at ridiculous levels that have nothing to do with fundamentals. Um, we see you know, in cra crazy risk appetite for investors, retail investors entering the fray, re-entering the fray, because they were many of them gone for, for a while. And so where do you view that if we had to, obviously with a caveat that nothing is exactly the same ever, but what do you think is the most apt historical parallel here as we record this in February, 2021? 
uh, thank you for putting me on record for what I, I always make a prediction, never say when, or if you say you have a prediction, never say uh, when. Exactly. If you say when, not what, not what it's going to be. So um, we talked a little bit about this. And, and one of the things I think is a great, that great, great quote, you know, history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes. And mm. So what's the rhyme? You said that, by the way, do you? I have no idea. Me neither. We'll have to look it up. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Anyway, so what's the, what's the rhyme? What's the poetry right now? So you, know, you brought up a good analogy in 1999, and it has a lot of feels like that. We have tech stocks, high, big top, tap, tech stocks going through the roof. We have retail jump, one jumping in, people you know, buying things like GameStop. It's a great you know, sign that we're near the top because we have you know, people buying a company that's going bankrupt and saying you can buy and hold it to drive, punish a, a hedge fund is stupid. Mm. Yeah, you're going to buy and hold it till it goes bankrupt. What I mean, anyway. So that kind of retail froth is there. Um, you know, we have other names uh, like Shopify, which is you know hot company. It's taken on Amazon. Amazon is a kind of a you know the retail you know juggernaut, and Shopify is having ways for smaller retailers to take them on. But you know, Shopify has a you know price to sales ratio that's through the roof, and um, the company's got cool technology, but it ain't run that well. Mm. You know, they're kind of a sleepy little like Canadian company singing Kumbaya and they're just feeling lucky. <laughs> so, you know, how do we, you know, so we're, we're, in a, we're in a silly phase of investing. And the question is, when does that end? You could also say, you know, this is different. You know, so we have financial stimulation like we had at the end of the great financial crisis. Right. Like 2008. So you can say that's the model. Right. But things are different this time than then. And the big difference is the financial system. So banks were going under. Right. Right now, banks are in pretty good shape. Right. I mean, they have their issues. I mean, you have, you know, credit, commercial real estate is, you know, falling off a cliff. You have a lot of people who are behind in the mortgage payments, but because they have a forbearance, you're not seeing it. Right. The banks have taken. Um, tremendous amount of uh, reserves. So they're, they're well reserved for all this. Yeah. They can see the numbers, even though we may not see the cash flow. Mm -hmm. right? um, so that's a difference. And one of the other big differences, and this is the thing that I'm wrestling with, and I'm not the only one. So in 2008, 2009, 10, you know, we had the Fed put in a lot of money and people felt there was going to be inflation and there wasn't. And there's a good reason for that because people were hoarding cash. Mm -hmm. So as much money as you put into that, we didn't spend it. So there's a thing called the velocity of money, which I spend pay a lot of attention to. So it's, if you had Irving Fisher had the had an equation back in the 1920s, and it's uh, MV equals PQ, which is basically say um, the money supply times velocity equals the nominal GDP growth. Hmm. So. Um, if the velocity of money is going down, you can put a lot of money into it and it won't change the price level, um, which is what happened for us in, uh, in the, in the, you know, after the great financial crisis. Right. It's different this time. So what's different? So the banks have pretty good balance sheets. They're not trying to repair them. And so what happened in the great financial crisis is the Federal Reserve put a lot of money into the system the banks took it and then they deposited it back at the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve had an asset go up and then they had a liability go up from the banks increasing their reserves. And the banks then had a nice long-term spread business. They borrowed cheap, you know, from the depositors and gave it back to the Fed. And then they could have buy assets from the Fed, you know, an asset and still be getting money. So it had, a, it was an easy trade for them. This time, banks are going to be lending more. And uh, right now, it's beginning to take money that they had deposited at the Fed, the reserves that they kept at the Fed, they're taking that out and spending it. And you're having the federal government having fiscal policy, which we did not do mm. in the great financial crisis, also spending. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of liquidity that's coming into the system that probably will be spent, but that's a probable, not a certain. So... People have been hoarding cash through the pandemic. And so they've been paying off credit cards. Savings rate has gone up. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how fast do we come out of this? 
So do we come out of this rip roaring? So like the all, you know, in the great financial crisis, we grew at like a 3%. We didn't have any big 8% quarters, 10% growth quarters in a row. We should have had a whole bunch of them. We didn't. So the unemployment rate went down slowly. This time, how do we come out of it? Does the unemployment rate drop like a rock or do we slowly chip away at it like we did in the great financial crisis? Given the amount of government spending and the nature of the crisis, that it's a pandemic. So once, once you want to get, once it's once we have the all clear, I mean, I think young people are going to be partying in the streets. I mean, New York City is going to be one big discotheque, I expect. You know? if, anybody, if anybody's left, yeah. Well, if you're under 20, 30, you don't have a problem. It's my age. I'm the, you know, I'm the people who are dropping dead, you know, so. <laughs> well, not quite yet there, Leo. I mean, come on. I try to be healthy. I mean, I walk two to four miles, but yeah. So, but it's the, uh, it's the, it's the young and how that happens. How do they come out and start spending? And mm. I think, you know, like travel, there's a huge pent up demand. So it's one of the names we talked about earlier, the idea of, you know, um, aircraft leasing right. companies and, you know, the airlines, yeah. I think they're fantastic ideas. Okay, okay, um, okay. Because it's pent-up demand. It's gigantic. Yeah. I mean, we're right. tired of sitting at home. Any favorites there? Well, uh, I sent you something the other day about uh, some of the aircraft leasing companies. Now, that mm -hmm. I did this. That slide deck was back in, this, uh, in the summer, in the summer. So we're now kind of, we've, we've changed. So one of the things, the markets have changed, the change in the wind in the air. So this again is, you know, it's it's definitely different right at the moment than it was in the summer. We have uh, we have slope in the yield curve. We're above one percent. Right. One point three, I think, this morning, maybe one point three three. I don't know. Anyways, and um, we have small cap stocks that are beginning to really percolate. Hmm. You know, from the um, it was there was a bottom in September, then we had another one in November, and since then, you know, small cap has been a rocket. So. Um, it's a different world. And so some of these names, like I was mentioning, uh, Aircap and Airlease have taken off. They're up 40%. They have more to run. Certainly some of the airlines have more to run. Delta, JetBlue, uh, of course, Southwest. Um, you know, United and uh, American are okay. American Airlines has so much debt. I mean, they have enough to cash to survive if you model out their cash flows. But it's nip and tuck mm -hmm. but you know there's you know those three i mentioned they they're going to survive they're going to thrive mm -hmm. and um you know those are great ideas but then i particularly like the aircraft leasing companies right. let me give you because they got hurt worse than the airlines and so they have a different perspective so they got all lumped into the same and the people said oh it's a financial business and so i don't want to look at this it's a problem well the difference is is that Aircraft leasing, even though you might suspend your lease payments, you're still on the hook for them. So the aircraft companies have to get made current. Where aircraft travel, air, you know, tra travel for the airlines, that demand is gone. Right. You might double up and take, you know, twice as many trips, but can you do as much as you would have done if you didn't have this? Like getting a haircut, you know. Once you can't cut your hair, you're going to cut it twice as often, you know, twice a week instead of once a month. I mean, it, there's enough, there's a certain amount of travel that you can't, that's forever gone. Um, where, the, where the lease payments, they still have to make them. Right. And so that cash flow, unless the aircraft company goes bankrupt, the airline, excuse me, the airline company goes bankrupt, you will get that. Payment. Now, if it does go bankrupt, there's a bunch of things that will happen. So the air leasing companies are able to repossess the aircraft, and they're very good at that. All these these the are asset-backed loans? These are asset-backed loans backed by the aircraft. aircraft. Yeah. And the aircraft has a lot of value. And one of the things that will begin to happen is, you know, well, that's, let me, that's a good segue to what's happening with the manufacturer. So the the aircraft leasing companies, they use their balance sheet to buy the aircraft. They're the biggest purchasers of aircraft. Okay. So Boeing and Air, Airbus, they're their biggest customer. Boeing and Airbus are not going to push these guys into bankruptcy because they have all these back orders. Okay. But does it serve them to force them to buy an aircraft that pushes them into bankruptcy? No, they're not going to do that. Okay. So you have to understand the, who has the risk. And, and the aircraft, 
the airline companies, they don't have the balance sheets to buy the aircraft. So they're going to need to be able to have somebody buy these aircraft and then they're going to release them. And in fact, they may be wanting to sell aircraft, sell aircraft to get it off the balance sheet because they need cash. Right. So the aircraft leasing company is, is the, has, have the expertise, which banks and other companies don't, because one of the big expertise is to be able to repossess the aircraft to know where they are. And then the big thing is, is the gray market between buying and selling, knowing where the best markets are, what is the price differential between them. Uh-huh. And because they have the expertise of buying and, you know, and selling aircraft in different markets, especially the secondary market, the aftermarket, is the sale of the aircraft is keen to making profit on these. Okay. So walk me through this real quick. How, how these aircraft leasing companies work. So you, you, are they basically like the GMAC of like the, of the aircraft world? So they, no, they're, they're the ones that buy. So as you said, they, they put out the cash to buy the aircraft from Boeing and Airbus for, you know, for every major airline yeah. pretty much in the world. Okay. And so, especially, um, so air leasing has, you know, the majority of their air, 5% of their fleet is in the U.S. Okay. The rest of the fleet is outside of the U.S. Uh, I believe it's 75% is in a flagged carrier. That means it's either owned by the government or it's, you know, it's like Lufthansa or, or Aer Lingus. It's a national airline. It's a national asset. So the country itself will not let them go bankrupt. So like we lent money to the airlines and pandemic you know the local governments are going to be lending to these companies mm. to keep them afloat yeah all right although there have been examples of national airlines yeah. going back to the swiss yeah. air i remember yeah i mean they, you know it's listen i don't think it's a good bet for for government but you know some most nations feel it is mm. so um and then if you do go bankrupt and you don't make your lease payments they get repossessed and these aircraft have value now is the value of the aircraft the same as it was, you know, before the pandemic in February of 2020? No, mm. but you know, we don't have, we haven't had, we haven't had a lot of new aircraft. And as the demand comes back, I suspect the demand will come back fast, just like yeah. it did after 9/11 when nobody wanted to fly. I was one of the few people flying, uh-huh. and um, you know, we'll come back. Right on. All right. So what are, do you have some favorite stocks or any favorite of these air, air leasing companies? I gave you two, air, yeah. air Cap and Air Leasing. They're the biggest. Air Cap is A-E-R. Yeah. And what's Air Leasing? Uh, air Leasing, A-L. A-L, right. Okay. No, they've, they've jumped. I mean, mm. when I was writing about them, the book value was so far below uh, the purchase price. I mean, the current, it was like 60% of the and the book value is basically the aircraft. And since they almost always sell their aircraft at a gain, you can pretty much guess that the book value is, is a solid. It's one of the few times book value works. Mm. Interesting. So, so if you want to get another little out of consensus play, um, this time it's a little more techie. Okay. Um, so Nokia. Ah, so, yes, I remember them. Yep. Used to, everybody used to have their little cool yeah. phones, right? So, um, and Ericsson. Um, so this is a play on 5G. Uh-huh. So 5G will be the play of Internet of Things. So we, it's the next generation. Um, there's only three companies, actually four. The, four, the, the fourth company was very small, Samsung. Mm. They have technology. They could certainly become a player, but it's not the focus now. Um, Nokia, Ericsson, and then uh, Huawei, which is a Chinese right. company. But Huawei has been banned from the United States and Europe is considering it. And not to get you know, into any kind of China bashing, I suspect that Huawei will have a difficult time getting into the United States, Australia, and certainly parts of Europe have, have reconsidered. So mm-hmm. that leaves two players. I mean, you have an oligopoly to begin with. And if you take out you know, the, the third big player, <laughs> you're down to a duopoly. And, um, the thing about uh, 5G as a technology is it's, it's layered on top of the existing technologies. So if you think about it as kind of concentric cir- circles that keep getting bigger and bigger, right? Like the Russian Babushka technology, keep on taking one out of this. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the, the widest band will be the existing technology. So you have a very long range radio signal that will get you in and out 
Then you have a smaller web band, you know, in a smaller circle that is probably a little better technology, but you have faster weight, faster throughput. And then the smaller circle will be really the 5G millimeter wave, which will have very high throughput, very, you know, a lot of it's, it's, but you will have a very short distance. Okay. So it's physics that, you know, when you have a certain amount of energy, the wave can either be wide and short or narrow and long. Okay. Just so what did Nokia and Ericsson do for five? So they make all the, they make all the 5G infrastructure and radio. Oh, they do. Right. So it's, it's called RAN or radio access network. I see. So, so, so the internet of things will have to be run through 5G. So when you have your thermostat and you want to adjust it when you're coming to your country house and turn it up, you, your thermostat will connect to, you know, through your Wi-Fi network, but there'll be other things that just connect, you know, like your car will be connected to a, a network. So that internet of things idea has to use 5G. Right. And um, 5G is the next wave. Uh -huh. And um, it will create, you know, like if you have a, you want to stream a lot of video in a, in a football stadium, it will all be used. Sure, 5G. sure, 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 sure. So that next wave of things is happening now. And Nokia and Ericsson build all the radio networks that we rely on. So it's very cool. Called RAN, Random Ac Radio Access Network. Nokia had a misstep. Uh, about a year and a half ago in the fall of 2019, stock got down to like $2.50, $2, under three bucks, two fifty, three bucks. I picked it up then. Um, it was one of the uh, stocks that ran with GameStop. Uh -huh. Yeah, they had a big spike here back in, that's right, I remember this, right, back yeah. earlier this month, yeah. Yeah, I, I made a mistake. I should have, when I saw, I didn't move fast enough. When I saw it, I put an order and said, oh, I'll catch it on another, uh -huh. and I and buy it back later, but I didn't. But um, I'm, I'm honing, I'm, holding it, I'm going to own it because it has a lot of run. It has a tremendous amount of cash. Right. And they generate cash because they have a, a lot of patents. They have about 500 million euros a year of patent revenue. Huh. So they have a tremendous amount of cash flow just from their patents, which is for the 4G network and all the other legacy. Yeah, yeah. And the 4G network, I was getting about these circles. You have to have that 4G network to put the 5G network on and it yeah. has to work interoperably. You have to have... It's the software that will allow to pass the signals back and forth. Huh. And so you, you need a pretty good expertise in the old 4G network. Mm. So all your legacy systems will be um, using 4G and your networks that you've sold to whoever will be the part of that play. I mean, you, you know how to make your network better than somebody else. Great. Interestingly, Nokia is the only one out of the, those three I was telling you that has supplied in the United States all the legacy carriers. Uh -huh. So they're, they're the, like the go-to church. <laughs> Interesting. So I, I mean, so who knows? I mean, I think there'll be probably, you know, it's a name that will have a, has a long runway. They generate a lot of cash. They have, like eight, they have almost the same amount of uh, cash in their, as they do debt. Nice. So they have a large amount of debt, but they have a large amount of cash. The, the misstep back in the fall of 2019 was all about they had acquired uh, Alcatel-Lucent, and so they were integrating it, lost the ball. Well, they did the 4G, 5G technology. They didn't integrate it onto a chip, so it was economic. Mm -hmm. So now they're putting it all into one chip. There are laggards in putting it. The technology works, but the cost advantage of putting it instead of having two components onto one component it's much cheaper to manufacture or get caught up. The technology works. The one of three players, they have to be here. So, Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So that's that's a technology play that I like. Nice. All right. So we got three ideas here from Leo Schmidt. First of the, the uh, I forgot what it was, right? Energy. The, yep. the Energy, air leasing. Air leasing and, and Nokia. technology. Nokia. Technology, and, and yeah. Very cool. All right. Why don't we, this seems like a good time to take a break. Sounds good. So why don't we do that? Um, if you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. So do not touch the dial. If you are not a premium subscriber and want to become one, you can sign up at the website contrarian.supercast.tech, T-E-C-H, and get a bunch of really cool benefits, including a new daily contrarian podcast 
that I just started rolling out uh, that will be in your inboxes by around 7 or so a.m. every market morning. So that's contrarian.supercast.tech. I need to tell you about Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can absolutely recommend them. Uh, their research is different. They do not cherry pick positive or negative charts, nor do they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. They have an intellectually consistent approach. They grew through a consistent set of relevant data, put them through the same consistent set of frameworks, and then summarize the whole thing in a checklist with a concise written summary. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer, which is a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website MerckResearch.com, sign up for one of the subscriptions, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout to take advantage of this limited offer. That's MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. You are listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms where podcasts are found. Subscribe and supply an honest rating. We're on social media. Search for Contrarian Investor Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on LinkedIn as well. Go to linkedin.com forward slash contrarian podcast. We want to hear from our listeners. Email your thoughts to feedback at contrarianpod.com. A repository of all podcast episodes and materials is available on our website, contrarianpod.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Mr. Baker. All right, Leo Schmidt, River Eddy Capital Management. Thank you again for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. By the way, to rewind real quick, that quote about the past doesn't always repeat itself, it rhymes, came from the same individual who said that the coldest winter he ever spent was the summer he spent in San Francisco. Uh, Mark Twain was ah. his name. Uh, yeah, which I, I should have known, but you know, whatever. Um, when in doubt, you can either attribute things to Mark Twain or to Winston <laughs> Churchill, I have found. Anyway. It works pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder how many, especially in Churchill's case, how many of those things he actually said. Probably not all that many, but that's another topic for another day. All right. This is the section of the show where we get to know the guest a little bit better, ask him about his background, how he came to uh, investing in the first place and, and this current stage of his career. So why don't you take us away and, and uh, talk to us a little bit about that? So let me uh, give you, let's see, let's start with, um, so I used to be at the Chubb Corporation. Right. And um, I managed, uh, helped manage their equity portfolio. It was a $2 billion portfolio out of a 45 billion total company assets. We had a very good track record. We had uh, almost 300 basis points versus the S&P 500 over 10 years. Um, so it's a nice track record. We uh, had about you know, 70, 80 stocks in that. And so I'm a generalist. I looked at anything and everything. Um, one of the special sauces for that portfolio was we were an all cap. So while we would have giant companies and we'd buy them well, the special sauce was having 30 to 40 names that would be small cap. And um, that's where we would get a lot of our performance. Mm -hmm. um, it taught me also to be understanding the liquidity of liquidity names. So if you're an insurance company, you always have to be uh, aware that you may need to sell something in a short time. Um, so that was, uh, that was uh, uh, my, what I did before I started River Eddy. We were acquired, Chubb was acquired by ACE. Right. And they threw out the investment department. It was disappointing. But I had all my deferred comp come forward. And in essence, I retired at 60 and um, it was sad, but pretty happy. <laughs> mm. I am set free to do what I want to do. And um, yeah, let, that was probably an interesting time. Just before this acquisition happened, I, uh, I had a very interesting life experience. I had this syndrome called Guillain-Barre. These, whatever state to happen. I was hospitalized for... Uh, 40 days wow. and I was paralyzed, couldn't stand oh up and God. walk. And so I came out of that. And when I went back to work after within the first week, the company announced it was being acquired. I'm like, huh. oh, I've been through worse. I'm healthy. Yeah. I don't need to yeah. worry about this. 
So that was another kind of life-changing experience because I was a bit of a workaholic. And while I still love to work, um, you know, time to think about other things and giving back. So uh, we met in an interesting conversation once. And then, you know, I, uh, I liked helping people start it. So I have a large number of people who I mentor. Um, and so I started in a small cap value shop, a place called Mitch and Tang. There were a hedge fund before there was a hedge fund. Mm. They were the kind of guys who would beat uh, the S&P by a lot and have be only 75% invested and have a tremendous amount of cash. Um, and uh, I guess I went to... Columbia University, and I uh, got an MBA from NYU. And um, I guess the thing that's really interesting is I did show business for 10 years when I first came to New York. Really? Yeah. So, and I worked a good bit. I did West Side Story, The Revival. I was in the nightclub act at the Rainbow Room. And so wait, what kind were you, what kind, in what, how were you involved in show business? So I was, I was a, I was a dancer. Actually. No kidding. No kidding, I'm a giant for a dancer, but I, and I, I was a trickster, I like to jump and spin. Huh. And, um, you know, it was really a great training for Wall Street because it <laughs> taught you not to believe the BS. And, <laughs> you know, song, if you're in trouble going to your song and dance, don't let them shoot at you while you're standing still. So, uh, so that was a great training <laughs> for, um, for Wall Street. And then I went to Columbia. And I got a lot of scholarship money through Columbia. Columbia University is near and dear to my heart. And then out of Columbia, I got hired in this distinctive program, program where an accounting company hired me to go full-time to school for the first summer and pay me a salary. Mm. So um, I went to school for the summer full-time, part-time through winter, full-time another summer. And, and I had a MS in accounting, and then I hmm. could get an MBA on my own nickel. So I got that, an MBA hmm. from NYU. So how does college. one make the leap from literally dancing to investing? Like that seems like those worlds are more than one degree of separation apart. Yeah, you had, well, Columbia was the, was the connection. You know, you, I went I to see. Columbia and I did well. I hadn't okay. gone to school. So I, I, I oh, came to so it wasn't like 17. your MBA, this was your undergrad, okay. Yeah, and then I went, to Columbia as an undergrad. Nice. And uh, that was the, you know, and I worked hard, you know. Mm. Fortunately, math was always a friend of mine. And standardized tests, I, you know, I always read well. Mm -hmm. So that was always, you know, easy peasy for me to kind of do well on. And mm -hmm. um, I was lucky. Columbia gave me a, a, a chance. And um, so that was, you know, then, you know, I wanted to be an investment bank, but I was definitely out of, and I didn't fit into that mold. Uh -huh. You know, they were looking for a specific type. I mean, you're 10 years older than everybody. Yeah. You're not going to fit in. But I got this job with what with Price Waterhouse Coopers. And, um, you know, they uh, sent me to get a degree and, and work. And it was a great experience. Huh. And uh, from there, once I finished my MBA, I started an internship with uh, this place, Rich and Tang. And they taught me. They're all old-time investors, fantastic guys, super smart, always finding something new, looking for, and, um, you know, and kind of taught me my special sauce, which is free cash flow. Mm. So I think we've talked a little bit about this, but free cash flow is, I, I invest a lot like a PE guy. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the price of free cash flow. So that's, um, I mean, probably a lot of people you speak to as a contrarian. Actually, I think that's one of the things that's really hard for contrarians to be because you can't just do the opposite of everybody. You have to have some sort of grounding principle. Right. And that grounding principle is, is uh, be cash or the valuation, but cash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you can talk about Equitrans, what will the cash flow be, but you got to find your way to it. So mm. that's... Uh, Interesting. Interesting. All right. Uh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. Are you still involved in show business at all? I am not. Okay. I'm cured. Ah. <laughs> I have no, no desire, but uh, I do like, you know, I like to create a process. And so one of the things uh -huh. I find about this work is to create a process. I mean, I, I enjoy the game. Yeah. I, mean, I love the game. It's just too much fun. That's why I can't, I, I kind of got to play. Right. Um, I mean, I like to used to say, and I, it's still true. I mean, money is only the way you keep score. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, you're playing the game, yeah. you know, yeah. and unfortunately GameStop has gamified, right? That's the game has serious consequences. Another game I used to like to play is when I was going to college at Columbia, I would ride my bike back and forth. I'd go to the college, go to the restaurant job and home again. And, you know, I'd be riding in traffic. It was the best game I ever played. Mm. And, you know, I had, but you only get one guy. So if you get hit and wiped out, you're, you're dead. So I love the game, but you got to understand the risks. So um, investing has a similar kind of a uh, risk reward. Mm. Get wiped out, you're dead. So, um, right. you know, right. so unfortunately, a lot of people do not understand risk reward. Right. And that's, that's a problem. Right. And that's why we have a silliness right now. Yeah. 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 And probably too loose monetary policy and, and factoring in and, and, you know, this expectation that you get something for nothing and, and this gambler mindset, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of things involved in that. We, we talked a little earlier and I want to touch base on this and we, we're trying to find what's the right metaphor for the period that we're in. And, and yeah. I mentioned the late seventies. Right. And I think that also is a period where we had, um, we had a, a big drop in 1973, 74. We had a popular president, Jimmy Carter, come in. And um, after a president who was un, you know, unliked, unloved. And um, then all of a sudden, everything, the wheels came apart. Mm-hmm. We had rampant and I mean, wild inflation. And you know maybe that is a better model. I mean, things mm-hmm. are different. Um, we, we were, uh, Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Yeah. So there was a lot of other issues. Yeah. Um, but that's an error that we shouldn't forget because that's the last time we had inflation. Since then, it's been the great moderation. Mm. I mean, interest rates since 1982 has been one way yeah. down. Yeah. And we're about as close to zero as you could possibly get without going negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, the real rates are negative, but mm. actual nominal rate is yet to go negative. And mm-hmm. we follow Germany into that path. We could if we need to. I mean, the Fed said they aren't afraid to try stuff, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't know, though. Yeah. And that hasn't worked out well for Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. And, and in the 70s, also, don't forget, we also had stagflation eventually, right? I mean, there yep. was inflation without growth, right? And that yep. was a horrible thing. And, and Volcker ended up, you know, just by but by jacking up interest rates, whatever it was, 10%. Yep. You know, hopefully we won't have that. But, but it's well, really so you, you bring up a really good point. I actually met Volcker once. I was at a some sort of dinner for Pfizer, and I'm the only guy who knows he's out there nobody's talking to him I come up he's a giant of a man he's like six eight and I'm shaking his hand and, and, and I'm gushing oh you saved us from inflation how can I ever I'm just blubbering you know nobody else all these doctors they could tell less but I, I'm I blubber anyways um he did something quite unique and he turned the world on his head so sort of like what Ben Bernanke did and that we used to target interest rates and Be- and Volker said no we're not going to target rates we're just going to target the rate of growth of the money supply Right. Interest rates go where they want, but we're going to have just steady increase in money supply and, you know, interest rates shot to the roof, but he killed and cured inflation. Um, so, you know, we had, so we thought you brought up stagflation, which I think is a really interesting idea because Milton Friedman won a, a Nobel Prize for his explanation. And, I, and another guy did the same explanation who I studied with at Columbia was Edmund Phelps. I actually think Friedman had a better model, but the basic idea is we had these inflationary expectations built in and they're hard to break once you set them in, especially you have cost of living adjustments for unions and inflations, right? We don't quite have the same model now. We don't have the same inflationary uh, living wage expectations. Right. So that's one of the things why you, you couldn't have, we had the Phillips curve and the Phillips curve said you couldn't have inflation with uh, unemployment. And we did have unemployment and we had stagflation. So that was through them, you know. So very important idea right now because what we were touching in, how fast does the labor market heal? The labor market heals quickly, mm-hmm. you know, and we get to full employment relatively quick, which might be a big leap. Then how do you slow the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, you That's, jack up rates. I mean, right? That's what Greenspan did eventually. And Bernanke. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Bernanke had a different, it wasn't just, that was a different, that was a bu- housing bubble without much growth, but 
Greenspan certainly did in the early 2000s, right? I mean, yeah, 2006, 2007, the short-term wait was 5.5%. Yeah, yeah, it jacked up that high. Yeah. Think about that now. 5.5% right. people would be dancing in the streets if you're a you know, fixed-income manager. Yeah, yeah. That's overnight money. Right. Well, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's one thing that the Fed has said is that they, and what people have said is that they've learned from that. I remember Bernanke, it was like every quarter, if I'm not mistaken, he raised it a quarter point, like, and it was like yep. clockwork. Like if you look from, at the chart yeah, back Greenspan then, it was just like a nice little thing. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. And so, but which in, in retrospect turned out to be way too aggressive. So they say they've learned from that and they're not going to do it. Um, so we're fighting the last war. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, when, you know, which is, I'm not saying, certainly we're not going to have inflation and, and anybody who's betting, you should bet that the market's going to go up in the near term. But I also am cognizant of the old saying, you know, buy in the rumors, sell on the news. So the mm -hmm. rumor is markets are going to go up. So we've had a rip-roaring market mm -hmm. rally, you know, and it was expensive before the pandemic and it's now even more expensive with, you know, earnings, you know, low. I mean, mm -hmm. in, the, in 2008, 2009, you know, we had a, not a, it's getting rich, but it wasn't way overvalued. Mm -hmm. We're way overvalued and the market's gone up and we still don't mm -hmm. really have earnings recovering. Right. I mean, they've covered, recovered incredibly fast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so does that mean we're due for, not, I don't want to bet against what, what's happening in between fiscal and monetary policy. And I think one of the other things we have to really bring up here, which is hard to factor in, and if you're a contrarian investor, you should think about this, is the divide between Main Street and Wall Street. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, there's people suffering. If you're a waiter, yeah. I mean, I waited tables through college. I mean, I wouldn't know how to survive this. You yeah. know, I would be driving a truck from somewhere that, you know, I'd find some place that nobody wanted to go to and I'd drive there, <laughs> you know. Right. Right. Um, but there's a there's a suffering on Main Street that's different than what we on Wall Street have experienced. Right. And so, uh, how does that divide get healed? I don't know. I mean, I don't think fiscal policy is what we have right now. I mean, we're just throwing money at the problem, and yeah. you know, so part of the you know, part of the way we're fixing it is we're going to have some infrastructure projects, which would be great because you mm -hmm. get a return on investment. I mean, one of the problems we did in 2008 is that we threw money, but we didn't do projects that returned on investment. So right. the uh, government spending multiplier, which I call it in Keynesian models, you know, if it's less than one, so you spend a dollar, you don't get as much back. If right. you get more than one, you get more back. So it's like a return on investment. So if you get 1.15 as a government multiplier, you're getting 15% return on your dollar. But consider the problem that we had in the great financial crisis. We didn't probably get a return on our dollar or very low return. Right. So this time, do we get more of a return on our dollar? Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, well, we'll see. I mean, there's gonna, there would have to be some big infrastructure. I mean, that's a good point. Where did that money go? I mean, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't much fiscal spending beyond you know, military. And I mean, there was a, there, they did build, they did send do some stuff, some stimulus, I think. Yeah. yeah. Fiscally in 08, 09, but nothing, but most of it was on the monetary side, but, but now, and now again, you know, what are you going to do? Right. And, um, you know, can you really have, I mean, the government's still pretty divided, even with a democratic president and, yeah. and Democrat Senate and, and, and house, but can you still, can you get something passed? Some big, that would be a big infrastructure bill. I don't know. I mean, that's um, and what form would that take? And yep, yep. There's, a, there's a lot of political questions. I mean, and there's certainly conservative Democrats. The guy from the senator sure. from West Virginia yeah. is not, he, he votes, he'd probably be more comfortable as a, as a Republican, but you know, he's, he's a legacy blue dog Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so, yeah. Uh, you know, who knows with all that? I mean, certainly we need spending. I'm not saying not mm -hmm. to spend, but, you know, what we spend on could make a difference and how we spend. And it's really, you know, politics, is, you know, I grew up outside of Washington, DC. So yeah. um, that's why I went to Wall Street because I like honest greed. Compared, so, to, well, compared to Washington, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, this honest greed, I'm only thinking of you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, 
you know, um, but so we have we have this divide, and so that's going to make a big difference how we get to inflation or non-inflation. And so mm -hmm. there's a contrarian enemy says, oh, it's going to be inflationary this time, but the contrarian enemy says it's you know it's also going to be different this time. So I mean, but maybe it's not different. Maybe we have this problem that of unemployment that's going to be quite profound, mm. and the difference between white collar workers and those who can't work on a machine like we are mm -hmm. is going to be round. Yeah. Yeah. Rather a bit of a downer note there in the end, but, you know, for the short term, going back to, you know, financial markets, risk assets, you have to say that there are, are all signs are pretty much bullish. Would you agree? Yep. Yep. And we're in the Tina world. So, you know, there is no alternative. Right. So the Tina world says, uh, if you're managing money, like I worked for an insurance company and at one point, you know, there was 11 people managing $45 billion. Mm -hmm. And we could be responsible for a company of over 10,000 people, half the earnings, right? So 11 people, ah, 10,000 make half the earnings. Uh, that's when you had rates and you can make a difference. Yeah. Now you can't. Right. So anybody who has pensions, insurance assets, um, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing the rise of different entities like private equity mm. and um, CLOs, because, you know, CLOs, you know, which, and then there's all sorts of, of these new banking assets. What banks used to do have now become under like private equity and CLO right. management. So there's a whole new level of risk in that world. There's places where it makes a tremendous amount of sense. I love business development corporations. They make sure. first lien loans to private equity guys. High, but you have a solid position. But if you're a high yield manager, nobody has a tail and CLOs that are buying all these other crazy pieces of debt, they're just kind of what used to be in 2008, you know, buying up the residual piece and hoping that, you know, the law of law num big numbers were, you know, but if you're getting lots of crap and you're piling it in and saying it's actually not crap, you know, it's still crap, you know. Mm. Um, and so, we saw that in 2008 also with the mortgage-backed securities, remember, right? I mean, exactly. The residuals, you need to take a lot of those, but a lot of those were rated AAA, <laughs> which is a whole other story, but yeah. Yeah, we can go a long way on that one. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, but again, we kind of have that. We, we touched on this with ESG, having one number, like AAAs, mm -hmm. right? There was three levels of AAA. There was super duper AAA, just super AAA, and then, oh, old-fashioned AAA, but that was probably more like Barely investment grade, maybe not, you know? So yeah, it's people trying not to do your work. You have to, you have to do your work. Yeah, yeah. So, Can't create something out of nothing, All right? Well, All right, cool. Leo Schmidt, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Maybe in closing, tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. You are not on the social media. I am not, but I, I am. I'm a committee chair at the CFA Society. Right, which is where we met, right. Where we met. Yeah. I'm Institutional Asset Management Committee Chair. Last year, I happened to be the uh, Volunteer of the Year. I won the Volunteer of the Year Award, which means I'm the biggest sucker of the year. And <laughs> I was going to say that's something for your ESG. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the biggest sucker. Uh, I have a small group of clients, and so I'm not really looking for more. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, yes. fair enough. But at the, at the at the CFA Society of New York, which is a great organization, by the way, that and you uh, obviously pre-COVID you've had these events in person, and now you do some over Zoom, right? We do a lot over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous. It's it's almost exploding the amount of content we've been able to do because you don't uh -huh. have to travel. Um, yeah. I had a I had a nice event in uh, the end of January called uh, New Year Market Outlook. Had some really fantastic people. Somebody from BlackRock, somebody from uh, Lord Abbott, which was our sponsor. We had somebody from Alliance Bernstein, Shalaya Khan, who's fantastic. Yeah. And um, I was doing this, I, I'm blanking at the moment. Anyways, we had a really great uh, round table speaking. And uh, this morning, there was a nice round table seeking Alpha in China. I mean, we do something almost every day. Um, if your if viewers are interested, past events you can often see online. Yeah. So you don't have to. The current, you know, with so we usually put it on two weeks after right. the event. So you don't get the most current version, but if you want to take a look at something historic, it's possible. Yeah. And it's great content. And that website is CFA Institute NY.com. Is that it? No, it's CFA Society New York. Right. 
CFA Society New York, one word. All right, I'll look it up and, and put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Very good. All right, Leo, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, thank you all for listening. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.